Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Solo, a Star Wars story, directed by Chris Lord, Jim Miller, Phil Lord, Chris Miller, whatever it is, <laughs> and Ron Howard. Directed by that incredible uh, triple threat directing team, Lord, mm-hmm. Miller, and Howard. Yes, the most boring uh, law firm known to man. <laughs> uh, the first incantation w- of the Three Stooges. This is a uh, this is a big deal today, and uh, you know anything Star Wars is typically a big deal. Solo pretty much tanked at the box office. Yeah, uh, it's saying a lot when a movie that opens at 105 million dollars, which is the largest opening of Ron Howard's career, is considered <laughs> to be an enormous financial fa- well, not an enormous financial failure, a relative financial failure. Saying a lot about the series and saying a lot about the expectations coming in. And also, I think people were primed and ready to, uh, you know, with their think pieces and uh, ready to tear this this whole thing down after all the production fiascos that occurred um, that we've gone over in depth. I guess to catch people up, uh, the original directors uh, were fired. You know, they exited due to creative differences, but more or less fired two-thirds, three-quarters. Uh, it's kind of disputed, but a ways into filming. Uh, they shut down production for a couple weeks. Ron Howard came in, reshot pretty much everything, even recast a key role. Oddly similar to uh, the Rogue One situation, which seemed to be not quite as dramatic, but still made uh, public knowledge, you know, like they announced... The fact that they were bringing on Tony Gilroy really late in the game. They didn't ever technically fire Gareth Edwards the way that they very publicly fired Lord Miller here. But it is odd, right, that we've had two of these, uh, what, what do we call them, anthology movies, S- Star Wars story movies in a row that have both gone through eerily similar changes at the top of the food chain at the 11th hour mark, you know, like 70% of the way through the movie, give or take. Well, it's not only that. And, you know, part of this obviously is that. Uh, Star Wars is such big news, any sort of crew change or cast change or anything uh, becomes a big old deal. You know, there are all sorts of big budget movies that, you know, change writers, change directors. Usually happens before they start shooting, obviously. But um, it is interesting that there's only been one film in this entire new franchise, you know, overseen by Disney that hasn't had major changes at the top. You know, even episode seven, Force Awakens, you know, Michael Arndt was brought in to write the screenplay and basically Kasdan and Abrams scrapped that entire thing, even though Arndt, I think, still got a story by credit or even a screenplay credit. I'm not sure. I think you're right. I think story by, although he had, he was the sole screenwriter there for a while. Uh, pretty, I think pretty much up until J.J. Abrams was officially announced. And then I think yeah. Abrams like cleaned house. I would have loved to have Seen, heard, you know, read what that Michael Arndt script looked like. I'll tell you that much because I, I I love his yeah, work. Very much like to see it. And the company line was that Michael Arndt's process was taking a little longer than they had to give. Which, uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that they scrapped the whole thing makes me believe that's not true. Um, so Ryan Johnson, episode eight, uh, is the only one to sort of get through his pre-production production without any major snafus, mm. and as a reward, he's given a whole trilogy. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get. That's what you get for coming out of these without any drama. You get your own trilogy. You know, at this point, it's it's more it's more than just coincidence. You know, it, it is something to do with the hiring practices of Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm, and the how much they wanted exactly like the higher-ups want it, I suppose. Like, 
it's hard to say where the sort of lack of communication is coming from during the hiring process for these, you know, the creative folks involved. But, you know, at this point, it's kind of, you feel like Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy have to look themselves in the mirror and say, what do you, what do we really want here? Right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to just be so harsh as to say they're floundering here because even with all of the sort of um, mixed response towards The Last Jedi, the movie still made $1.4 billion, right? Yeah. And was critically acclaimed. So, like, if you have, if you're financially successful and you're critically successful, um, most people would say you've done something right. What's strange about these franchise properties is that basically uh, The Last Jedi is considered to be, I guess, something of a mixed bag in terms of its success ratio by nature of the fact that fans were so divided like is there any other series of films that is so reliant on you know fan reaction positive fan reaction or fan consensus which almost never happens yeah yeah you're right i mean even more so than the marvel stuff i would say like this this series has been for better or for worse kind of defined by the dr- dramatic swings and the fan reaction movie to movie it, it, it's odd i mean i <laughs> I wasn't cruising around Reddit or whatever the Reddit facsimile was during the prequel trilogy. <laughs> um, so I don't know what the movie-to-movie reactions were on a grand scale. I obviously remember stuff like, you know, Any Cool News bumping it up and saying it's great and people buying into the hype and wanting those movies to be so good even though they clearly weren't. But I, I wasn't aware of how sort of rabid the fanboy hate for The Last Jedi really truly was until until pretty recently in talking about Last Jedi and, and blaming that movie for for Solo's box office, people felt you know torn away or uh, from f- from their from their early childhood fandom. They thought Last Jedi was so different and so uh, not their Star Wars, right? I feel like there's so many reasons to point to <laughs> as why this movie is shaping up to be a little bit of a financial failure. It never even occurred to me that this was backlash based on some kind of negative reaction to the Last Jedi because. A lot of people have been saying, oh, everything that you criticized about The Last Jedi, Solo reverts back to what we think you're looking for. And uh, I'm very happy to say that I wasn't crazy about The Last Jedi, and I'm also not crazy about Solo. So I'm happy to be the person who kind of uh, subverts that particular reasoning for for why this film is struggling to find an audience on the size of, you know, Rogue One, for example. To your point, if a movie is extremely great, like if it executes perfectly on whatever premise it takes or whatever tactic takes, it's people are going to respond well, right? It's not what a movie about is about; it's how it's about what it's about, right? So, like Last Jedi, maybe could have been more pleasing to the fanboys if it just was better at what it was trying to do. And so, you know, I think the excuse that it was it was different in tone or story or or, or sort of uh, changed the the characters in ways that they felt were sort of. Uh, disloyal to the franchise itself i think those reasons are are pretty much bullshit i will say (laughs) i've watched last jedi a couple times since our podcast on it and i'm beginning to swing towards towards your sentiments much more so than i was on that initial podcast oh really you're you're souring to it a little bit i'm souring to it a little bit okay just sort of in the ways that i that i just said like i i do like the sort of attempts at where it went and sort of symbolically i liked where the story went but i do think the execution was lacking 
in a lot of ways, uh, especially narratively, especially sort of some of the the dead ends that didn't come to be. And you know, I was I was at a at a bar yesterday getting a getting a bite to eat and watching a little bit uh, of baseball. And one of their big screens, for whatever reason, it was on TNT, and they were showing the entire original trilogy. <laughs> and just and just watching Empire, you know, sort of half watching it from afar, and just thinking about all the things I'd read about Last Jedi and Solo. I don't know. There just seemed to be so much more gravitas to what was going on in Empire than anything uh, in The Last Jedi, which, uh, I don't know, it just sort of struck me. And, you know, part of that is obviously nostalgia. You know, it's interesting to see where, where the Star Wars franchise is going to go because the reactions from their their base audience um, and the excitement from the base audience uh, it seems to be waning to a pretty significant degree. I think the fatigue is real, for sure. I mean, you point to Empire Strikes Back and I think that that movie is just such an incredible, just a miracle, like an like a miracle of alchemy, right? Like yeah. the fact that Lucas decided not to direct it so that he could be involved in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that Lawrence Kasdan was just on fire in the early 80s, you know? Like if you look at that, you know, if you look at Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Body Heat, Big Chill. I mean, the guy was just firing on all cylinders. Like he just, he was in a groove. He just, he, he, yeah. he could just do no wrong. And he just found this incredible, he found a way to represent all the things that Star Wars, that the A New Hope did well, but he found a way to deepen it and make it more interesting and make it more character based. Yeah. And to make it more kind of like nihilistic, really, in its own way. And that movie is just, it's just kind of a miracle. I don't even necessarily give Kasten and Lucas and those guys as much credit as I give just like a confluence of events coming together at a really, at the perfect time. Um, you know, Irvin Kirshner never really did anything else after that. That was <laughs> all of that, you know, he did never say never again. So I can't even give him, give him that much credit. Just an incredible amount of things came together at a perfect time. And that movie is just an absolute miracle. But I think, you really do need to look at that and look at Lawrence Kasdan and look at the through line that led up to the making of Solo because ultimately we're trying to figure out what's what's Lord Miller, what's Howard, when we really should be looking at this as a Lawrence Kasdan movie more so yeah. than a Lord or Miller or Howard film, right? Ultimately, Lawrence Kasdan and his son John wrote this together and mm-hmm. they were the sort of like driving creative force. This was their baby. This is something Lucas hired them to do years ago. What, 2012 is when I think he commissioned them to... I mean, they'd been wanting to do it since the 80s, but I think Lucas officially commissioned them well before, you know, Disney bought Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy took over. This has been a long gestating project. Yeah, it's something they thought about for a long time. I don't don't know if they had the script sort of in the can uh, a while back or or whatever. No, I think it's just something they've been spitballing for like 25 years. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, and we can get into the, you know, the specifics of the movie soon here, but this movie is clearly written as the first part of a trilogy, at least it felt like to me. Did you get the same? Yeah, which is something I I didn't realize until too late that that was the direction. And something tells me that was probably not necessarily Kathleen Kennedy's decision, but that was probably a like Lucasfilm board of directors decision, right? Yeah. I mean, we were yeah. we were always told at the beginning of this thing like we'll get the saga movies that move forward and they might come three at a time, but then we'll get these weird little um, anthology films that'll be like interstitial things, which will just be these little one-offs, right? Your little heist movie here, your little Western movie there. There'll just be these little experiments. We'll bring in young directors. And that's what this was supposed to be, right? It was just supposed to be a taste, just like, ooh, a little 
a little chapter in the life of this character that we love so much, and then that'll be it, and then we'll just move on to the next thing. What's What it's become is, like you said, the beginning of a new trilogy, which turns me off so much because it feels like I was led to look forward to something that this isn't, and I feel mm-hmm. like I've been somewhat betrayed. I guess before we get into it, there, I think there are some things we should discuss about, about Lucasfilm, and this is a good point to look back and see where they've maybe erred, uh, especially on the side of, of greed early on in possessing this franchise franchise greed shoots first uh, they these were supposed to be little interstitials uh but now we know that you know the the game of thrones guys are going to create a trilogy a sort of standalone trilogy ryan johnson's going to create a different trilogy we're gonna have this john favreau tv series just in the last week we know that obi-wan and boa fett movies are are sort of green lighted and in the works and have hired directors for them oh, the, oh i uh, haven't heard about the obi tell me about the obi-wan movie do we, what, yeah, what sort of details do we have about that? Tony Gilroy. I mean, he's coming back, right? Isn't that the idea? Oh, that's news to me. I was aware of the James Mangold, Boba, Bo, uh, Boba Fett thing, but I'm this. if Tony Gilroy is coming back for an Obi-Wan thing, that's that's totally news to me. Obi-Wan was supposedly, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, not Stephen Daldry is the person who is who's working on it. <laughs> okay. Which is Director also, of the Hours and extremely loud yes. but incredibly close and billy yes. elliott and yeah i shouldn't judge very very <laughs> interesting tony gilroy would be uh, exciting this is not that exciting yeah, right <laughs> regardless like they've all these movies in the works now i wonder if they're going to reconsider after what happened to solo uh given what you said earlier it's true like there's so many different things you can point to and people have been pointing to so many different things in the past oh yeah a lot of pointing hours. a lot of pointing happening in the last uh, 72 uh, hours or so yeah where the reality is is probably you know a ton of little things you know equaling the you know the significant drop in in, in box office i guarantee the powers that be luke's film will say you know what this is sort of a a random event there's so much bad buzz with the director change and we weren't able to get our you know press marketing material out uh, at a reasonable time blah 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 but i do think the fatigue is the main thing here because forever star wars has been so special like a new star wars movie is such a crazy event i remember even you know force awakens seeing that opening night was such a huge fucking deal then it got a little less special for rogue one a little less special for episode eight and a lot less special for for solo just the feeling in the theater you know so opening night thursday 10 p.m and the theater was half full no i I was there yeah i was there like 8 p.m on thursday night and it was so early that actually the ushers came into the theater and said this is such an early sneak preview of the film that we're not even going to show trailers before it like they hadn't even had time to build out the program in the theater yeah. to put trailers at the at the head of the DCP, so they were just like, "We're just going to start the movie because this is this is literally the first time that we screen this in this theater." And you're exactly right. There, I was it was it was it was probably about half full when I sat down, and then by the time I left, I looked back, and it was probably three quarters full. So Lucasfilm, I feel, learned and Disney learned exactly the wrong lessons from from owning marvel right like marvel is supposed to be a comic book entity right like comic books come out every week there's nothing there's no you know specialness to the individual parts of it like it's just the fact that they keep coming that that is special like audiences don't don't need the break that they would uh that they kind of do for these epic space opera movies that that have become such a cultural touchstone like you really are diluting the brand by coming out with these movies uh in succession especially this one coming out five months after episode eight yeah that was my Um, next question this is clearly the shortest window 
between any Star Wars film, right? Oh, it's not even close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the closest by a mile. If ever there was an opportunity to say, hey, we need a little more time here, guys. Like, hey, mm-hmm. we, we fucking switched horses have, you know, midstream. Like, we need mm-hmm. a little more time. I don't think anybody would have pitched a fit over that, right? It would have been like, no. yeah, all right, you, you gotta gotta reshoot some stuff. You gotta reorganize. You literally switch directors. They had this incredible opportunity to push back and you know and say, we're just gonna make this uh, another Christmas time thing. Like it almost like it has been the last handful of times. And I can't believe they didn't take that opportunity to do that. Not that it would have made it that much better of a film, but they had an out here that they didn't take, which I think is crazy. There's got to be something political or financial going on. They contributed to that decision, right? Well, I guess it's just Disney stockholders that they feel like they have to appease, which is obviously not the right way to uh, make movies. But I just, you know, you look at the original Star Wars movies and the opportunity uh, was there to do the same thing, which is three years in between. And you do one a year and a half later, you do an interstitial, right? So every December, you know, every three years, you get a new episode and then a year and a half later in you know in springtime early summer you get one of these star wars story movies like that th- doesn't that feel like the the easiest best schedule for everyone involved and you can keep do i feel like that that is enough time you can continue to do that uh in perpetuity i apologize but i'm going to uh call you naive and say that uh, I think what their true motive was, they don't want to do this every year and a half. They want to do this every year. So they basically want to do a saga movie every December and an interstitial movie every May. So they want to own Christmas and they want to own summer. Like the less important ones during the summertime so that we can own both Christmas and summer the way that Marvel does, the way that Marvel does two or three movies a year. I, I think they probably would hope to do that, you know, five or 10 years down the line. And that's why I think that they wanted to push to get this out of Memorial Day, because they want to start getting us sort of like, they want to get us used to the fact that we can look forward to a Star Wars film during the summertime in a way that we haven't since Revenge of the Sith, right? Well, I mean, obviously that's, there's, that's true. Like there's a reason they did this. Um, What's on the docket? I think think it's going to backfire, man. I think it's, I think it's going to come back to haunt them. I completely agree. I think this is an example of how it already is backfiring, but what, what, what is on the docket coming up? Like, What's what's in the books? We have uh, JJ doing episode what nine? Episode nine, December of twenty nineteen, right? Okay, so we're gonna have a year and a half off here. I think we all need that. <laughs> I, really I think, think we all do. I think at this point we all really need a little bit of a breath. We get that in twenty nineteen, and I presume like the James Mangold Boba Fett movie would be in the summer of twenty twenty, probably right. Yeah, that sounds right. And then we would be getting the first Ryan Johnson movie in December of twenty twenty. Is that too early? No, that's possible. It could be Ryan Johnson or it could be uh, Game of Thrones guys, although they, I assume, have not started working on it yet since they're still a little busy. Yeah, they got to finish their uh, their epic series first, right? What I presume they want to do is they want to release two of these a year. Yeah, that's probably... That's my conspiracy theory. Like that, that's the trajectory I think they're moving towards. But I think this throws a big, a big old uh, monkey wrench in that plan. Or maybe this is just an anomaly. I mean, again, like there's so many different sort of explanations you can throw at this thing that it's almost like, you know, I feel like I've done nothing but think about it and talk to people about it and listen to podcasts about it that at this point, I'm starting to think that maybe this is just a fluke. <laughs> maybe there, maybe we shouldn't be overthinking this so much. This yeah, is kind of I mean, like when, when, when we talked about Infinity War and you said, I think we're just thinking about this way too much. <laughs> it's just, a, <laughs> for God's sake, it's just a movie. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it's probably true. In the um, spirit of that, let's overthink it and let's talk about it. 
as a segue into talking about this movie, I'll throw this potential thing out there. It is possible that they overestimated the love for Han Solo as a character here. Um, I find that hard to believe, but maybe it's Harrison Ford that's the draw and not the character, right? Or there's a sense that we may love a character. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to know where they came from. Yeah, I mean, that, that's Patton Oswalt's favorite, uh, like, famous uh, thing about the prequel trilogy Exactly, general, exactly. Right? Like, yeah. I, love the, <laughs> I love the things that I love. I don't necessarily need to know where the things that I love came from. And the, the prequel trilogy spent three films telling us where Darth Vader came from, and we all resoundingly rejected it. Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe there's something to be said for some mystery about these, about these characters. I mean, Rogue One was an enormous financial success, basically revolving around a bunch of characters we had never met before. Yeah. So there's something, and I'm not even crazy about that movie, but there's something to be said for the fact that maybe it's the universe and the brand that's the draw, and we just want to see stories play out in this universe. I mean, I think that the characters people are really responding to, Lando Calrissian aside, in this film, are characters we've never met before. Sure. Maybe people seem to be crazy about, um, you know, the new droid. People seem to be crazy about uh, Tandy Newton and maybe to a lesser extent Woody Harrelson's character. Yeah. Or even I've heard a lot of people respond positively to Paul Bettany's character. So we seem to like these stories and we seem to like these worlds or, you know, galaxies, if you will. I'm going to echo a lot of our colleagues in saying that I think that Han Solo is probably the least interesting character in his own movie. We can get into the minutia of, of why that is here and what mistakes the film made in order to uh, achieve that incredibly inauspicious failure of storytelling. But I, I don't disagree with that sentiment. Yeah, and so it sounds like you were you're you did not enjoy this movie at all. Yeah, I really disliked it. Um, I, I didn't respond as viscerally, you know, negative as I did to you know something like Deadpool two. But um, but yeah, I did I did not like it at all, and uh, I was checking my watch a lot, and I couldn't wait for it to be over. And uh, there was very few high points in this for me. I mean, there was a couple times where I got the tingle, like maybe they were onto something, but more often than not, John Powell's incredibly vanilla, uninspired score kept reminding me that this was <laughs> this is a very disposable affair. Uh, yeah, I like the movie fine. I had a good time. Um, I do want to see it again and just uh, sort of calcify my thoughts, but uh, you know, it, it's very light. There's there's nothing nothing too heavy to to deal with. Um, the narrative is it's whatever. It's from A to B to C. Um, there's a couple of random happenstance things that happen that I'm not. Uh, uh, too enthralled with. I, I agree with you totally on the music. Uh, that did almost nothing for me throughout. Um, I do like Donald Glover. I do like uh, a bunch of the supporting cast. It's fun having Woody uh, in a Star Wars movie. I think Alden Ehrenreich does about as well as he kind of can with this script and this character and the, the weight of expectations. I think he, he tries to put a little smarm on this thing. Uh, but going back to your point, Han Solo is not giving is not given a lot of room to grow. It's just sort of he's not he's like ninety five percent confident and in, instead of the hundred percent confident that we get from maybe uh, you know a new hopes Han Solo. So I I don't know. Like this movie's fine and maybe it is Star Wars fatigue, 
that makes me feel better about this movie because I have I had such low expectations and I wasn't as stoked about it. It was, you know, it, again, it was fine. And I sort of echo a lot of the vanilla reviews that have come out about it. I think this is the second uh, Star Wars anthology film in a row that has promised a heist film and uh, not... Not followed up to that promise. I mean, I, I just feel like how do you how do you fuck this up? I mean, this is pretty goddamn straightforward. I guess what I would would have preferred to like a true origin story is just a straight up one off chapter in the life of young Han Solo. I guess that's what I really would have wanted is like yes. less about how he gets his goddamn name, which most people seem to agree is one of the silliest parts, one of the silliest moments in any Star Wars film. Yeah, I mean, there's so many points in this movie that answers questions that no nobody one was asked. like, yeah. nobody asked and yeah. no one gave a shit about, right? Yeah. Um, the the naming thing was, was certainly one. Meeting Chewbacca, uh, I guess that was fine as, in terms of origins go. It's one but, of the more successful ones because it is yeah. really well sort of orchestrated. Like, they come up with a pretty cool venue for that to happen. And I do kind of, like, buy the idea that because he, they they literally get in the mud together, you know, and then he sets him free. So that, you know, that responds to the whole idea of the life debt that Chewbacca has. So that was one of the less egregious ones for me. But, um, you know, the the name, the blaster... Even the fucking Millennium Falcon, man. I mean, I appreciated the fact that we go back to that well twice because I like the subversion of expectation that he doesn't actually win it the first time at the poker table. But as you're a gambler, you're a card player, and you're a guy who appreciates movies about gambling and card playing, if you're going to orchestrate a scene around a card game, there are no there are no dramatic stakes if you don't orient the audience as to how the game is played, right? So they're playing this card game that none of us have ever played before because it's a fucking space galactic card game from uh, mm-hmm. a long time ago in a galaxy far far away they don't even give us all they need to do is just like a little bit of droid exposition or something right like somebody yeah. leaning over and telling amelia clark how the game is played just a little bit of context because otherwise there's no stakes i don't know who's ahead i don't know who's doing what i don't know who's bluffing i know that uh, lando has like a little um, you know he, he's, he's got an ace up his sleeve so he's a yeah. cheater. But other than that, I, I have no idea what the fuck is going on in this game. And as a result, I, I can't get involved in the drama. Of it. Yeah, like, I don't like that Lando's a the, cheater, right? Although it kind of, yeah, it's character, I suppose. You're absolutely right. Although I will say, I'm not sure if it was worth, <laughs> it would be worth the attempt to orient an audience who might not be familiar with card games in general uh, to a game that doesn't exist, right? That would that would that'd be some pretty heavy expositional uh, you know, learning curve for, for, for everybody. But uh, I do agree with you that it was sort of unsatisfying, especially the you know, the final scene. Um, you you'd like to feel it was a little more earned uh, from Han Solo than, than, than something like this. Uh, there's no we didn't get to see the strategy at all. Um, although I will agree that the the first time, the first uh, gambling scene I did like that they did not give uh, Han the Han the ship right then and there. Uh, I was not expecting that. I thought it was going to be pretty lazy. That's kind of fun. I like the fact that we come back to it at the very end. I like the fact that the epilogue is him finally winning it. But this kind of brings me to a bigger problem that I have with the movie is that it doesn't ever really lead me to believe that anything Han is doing is anything besides luck, right? Like... And sure. and okay, and maybe that is maybe that's the character. Maybe I've just been I've been misreading the character for the last you know thirty six years, 
But because I don't know if he's a great card player or he's a horrible card player or he likes to bluff or he likes to cheat or whatever, I don't know if anything he's doing there is especially impressive. And that leads me to another issue, which is that the movie skips over maybe the most important chapter in the in sort of like the building of this character and the evolution of this character, which is why is he such a goddamn good pilot? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is it? Like, isn't that the most important thing? Like, isn't that sort of his like main qualifying, you know, the main qualifying aspect of his character? Yeah. Why is he so good at this? Why is he equipped to do the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs? Cause the movie completely ignores any of that, which is the thing I was most looking forward to seeing in his origin story. Maybe the only thing I was looking forward to seeing in his origin story. <laughs> How did he become so good at this? Because the movie's not interested in that. Yeah, well, confidence equals performance, Matt, right? I guess. And yeah. so he has a lot of that. Um, I don't know. I think you see a little bit of the, the hubris working out for him and during the, during the Kessel run, the famous Kessel run. I did like that entire sequence. I thought that was the high point of the movie. Them dropping into the salt mines and starting a robot revolution and getting everyone out, having some, some fun, uh, some fun fights and chaos and then driving, uh, driving away, <laughs> flying away past the crazy sea creature and all that shit. I, I thought that was a good time. I wanted more of, more of that throughout the movie. We've talked at length, at nauseum, about the origin story and what's necessary and what's not necessary. You know, we we always agree, like, just drop us in the middle somewhere. Like, don't half-ass this, like, you know, this is where he came from. And this, you know, he went through pilot school and he was in the army or p- part of the empire briefly. Uh, and then come to this, like, just start with the job and you can sprinkle in exposition going back to the beginning or whatever, but make it a little more self-contained because this this was felt like it was trying to have it both ways. It doesn't actually complete any of the missions it attempts, you know? Like, it doesn't completely sell me on why he's in love with this girl and why their relationship is so important for him to go back to this planet. And it also doesn't sell me on why... He has this kinship with this Woody Harrelson character who basically goes on to define his character for the rest of his career up until he joins the Rebellion or whatever. It also doesn't sell me on why this entire experience sort of sours him to the ideas of friendship or romance or uh, joining Rebellions. Like I feel like it's a movie working at cross-purposes. Like, shouldn't this be a Casino Royale-esque prequel origin story about this guy getting hardened and like learn learning to become cynical yes and learning to become the han solo that we meet at the beginning of a new hope in practice it basically is about a guy who starts off super duper idealistic and in love and ends up very heartbroken but still very very idealistic to the point where he basically gives over everything to this rebellion that he doesn't actually join theoretically for at least another decade right yeah like shouldn't he end the movie being very very greedy and cynical and out for himself and for his new first mate like why does he give everything over to this proto rebellion who show up very very late in the game why would he why should he care about any of this why should he care about giving over everything he sacrificed and did the kessel run to um, procure to these people who have basically been uh, trying to, like, you know, steal from him for the entire film. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but what you're forgetting is this is the first part of a trilogy, Matt. So they yeah, will see, explore these themes later on. That is some bullshit. Yeah, that that exactly. Like, that's, that's proof of why this movie doesn't work. Because if it truly is a part of a trilogy and it's expecting to uh, string me along for three more movies, then this movie is a failure. Yeah. 
you know? No. Like we've talked about this a lot that like even if you are part of a series or part of a, a part of a trilogy, you have to work there has to be an arc mm-hmm. um within the, the you know the confines of what you're working with. You have to work under your own terms and I think that this movie is very very unsatisfying in terms of Han Solo's in terms of the titular character's arc here. I'm just not buying any of it. And it, to me it feels completely at odds with what I know about the character when I met him in A New Hope. Sure. So, yes, maybe you're going to show me two more movies that prove to me why uh, why he gets there, like where it's going to how it's going to lead him there. Mm-hmm. But as a result, this movie feels extraordinarily uh, unaccomplished to me. Yeah, you're you're right. Uh, I, d- I can't disagree with with any of that. Uh, however, I, I will say I still enjoyed it because it was fun being in space, <laughs> and it, it wasn't partic- it wasn't like groan inducing at at any point for me. And I thought, you know, even the third act was was fun. You know, the cast was appealing. I I, I do feel like it is a huge missed opportunity to do something really fun and really sort of singular. Uh, with these characters, uh, although, uh, you know, as we discussed, it's not really necessary to do these origin things in general, but if you are going to do them, I think you keyed in on something that's uh, that would be super important. Like, you want to see the reasons why he acts a certain way, and I know this movie attempted that uh, at certain points, you know, whether it's the the shoot-first thing. But but it was more sort of physical and tangible than that. Like, here's where he got his blaster, and here's why the dice are important, and here's where he met Chewie, and here's how he got his name. Like, that stuff's not that important. What's important is... It's all very surface. Yeah, is in showing... Um, is sort of doing what, like, Lost the TV show did, right? Whereas if you think of the New Hope as stuff on the island, and then the you know backstory is, is whatever. Like, you, you really show why Han Solo made very specific decisions... Um, you know, in, in in a new hope in the you know the, the original trilogy, but we didn't really get a lot of that um, at all. Yeah, the movie's only really concerned with that surface level stuff. Like, how did he get his last name? Don't care. How did he get his blaster? Don't really care. How did he get his ship? I already kind of knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't really need to see the details of it. Um, what 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 am I interested in? What do I want to see? What intrigues me about the character? What am I fascinated by? Um, how he learned to be such a great pilot. Movie doesn't give you that at all. How did he become such an incredible cynic movie starts to kind of like hint at that but then doesn't really follow through in a very satisfying way the movie really hints at that kind of like dickensian oliver twisty stuff at yeah. the very beginning and then doesn't really give you anything satisfying like they, they're out of there so quickly right as they start to hone in on something interesting yeah why is he why is he reticent to join the rebellion why is he why does he just want want money why why does he eventually you know, join the rebellion because he hates the empire. Like, yeah, all these things for for this you know unique beloved character are uh, yeah not really explored in, in any way. And I would have I would have enjoyed more time uh, in what is it Corellia at the beginning. Yeah, of of the movie that place was was kind of cool, and I, I really liked the uh, the I like the space terminal stuff. I thought that was cool. Like, yeah, g- give us more of of that being sort of a. Uh, an escape like like the whole plan was sort of half-assed i thought like just give us a cool heist at the beginning of the movie um that involves him getting getting off uh off planet like and just the idea 
um, and something you never really think about during the Star Wars movies, the idea of it being so hard for you know a great portion of any planet's population to get out, like exploring that sort of like pie in the sky, I need to get off this planet because it's been so easy generally um, for our characters to you know to, to, to fly away. Yeah, especially when you're going to lean so heavily into this central romance when, like, his relationship with Amelia Clark is going to, like, that relationship is where the movie's going to kind of, like, hinge on emotionally. Mm -hmm. If it's going to be that important for you in the third act and betrayal or whatever, then you better lay the track for that in the first act, right? Which this movie does not do at all. You know, it really is half-assed just the fact that Emilia Clark's character Kira just shows up in the restaurant of this place, or whatever you want to call it. This this floating they call it a yacht, a boat, whatever. <laughs> it does fly away. It does it does sail away at one point like a yacht. So I'll I'll give them credit for that. Sort of on that point, none of these locations, with the exception of maybe that you know immigration, you know the border patrol or whatever, none of these places feel nearly as dangerous or seedy as you know most Isley. Like theoretically, this entire movie should take place. In these really seedy, scummy, you know, border towns yeah. that we saw, and most likely that that should be Han Solo's bread and butter, right? Like that's that's where he should be mostly existing. Yeah. And this movie never felt especially like dangerous. A lot of it takes place in the mud, but I never felt like anybody was especially like. It never felt like we, we were in danger of of like getting stabbed in the back at any point. Like I wanted this movie to take place in a perennial dive bar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, even then, like there's a. Uh... For a movie that's its budget was was like what two hundred fifty million, like it does feel like a smaller budget movie. Yeah, well, two hundred fifty million is is the whole thing. Yeah, like that's know, all in with the reshoots, right? <laughs> like, there's no reason this movie should be two hundred fifty million dollars. This is a hundred and thirty million dollar movie, all in. Yeah, if, if they'd done it properly. Yeah, but I mean, to your point, like I never got a good f- sense of space or or place uh during the movie and uh, it, it was a little too glossy especially everything that happens in the last half of the movie uh, i mean i'm with you like in a perfect world i wanted a different han solo movie but i was expecting almost nothing and i got a little <laughs> bit more than that you know it's it, it's fun fun having this character around I, and i do think alden Ehrenreich did a pretty darn good job yeah i, I thought he he acquitted himself given the material but I never was I never was beguiled by him. You know, I was never enchanted by him the way that I wanted to be. Sure. Um, the way that, you know, Donald Glover does, for example. I mean, this is not my concept, so I can't take credit for it. But some people have been writing or speaking on podcasts over the last couple of days saying that basically the re- one of the reasons that Lando in characterization is so successful in this film is that he basically is the Han Solo of this film. If if Han Solo is the Luke Skywalker of this movie, then Lando is the Han Solo of this movie, if you will. Yeah. Like Han Solo works best because he is not the main character of the Star Wars movies. Yes. And he works best not necessarily as a supporting character but as like an adjunct character, right? Mhm. He's the spice, you know. He's 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 on the he's on the fringes. He's commenting on all of it. He's us, really. He's a surrogate in a lot of ways because he's not taking any of it seriously, yeah. and because he's a little bit anachronistic. And part of the reason that one of the reasons that uh, Han Solo or that uh, Harrison Ford was so successful was because he didn't take it all seriously, right? Yeah, oh, because absolutely. he 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 thought it was kind of silly from the very beginning. Like he just sort of like. He was never George Lucas's first choice for the role. 
He was just like hanging out. He was a carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was standing in for some of these auditions. He was basically doing a favor for his friend George Lucas, and uh, he thought it was all kind of silly. But he was so perfect for it that he got cast, and then he became this iconic guy. And he was always great, and he was always effective because he was always working around the fringe. Now we've put him to the forefront, and it turns out that maybe this character isn't so interesting when you point the spotlight directly on him. Yeah, uh, I think you're probably on to something here. Uh, that said, I, I do think there's an opportunity to make a really good version of this movie. And this probably gets, you know, 30% of the way there. Let me ask you this, Matt. There's a lot of talk about this uh, this cameo at the end of this film. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, did you know that was going to happen coming into it? No, I had I had no idea. Okay. It totally blindsided me. But uh, I reacted the way I think a lot of people did, which was with a big old shrug and a bit of confusion because I don't follow all of the um, extended universe stuff and I don't watch any of the TV shows and I haven't read any of the novels. So I had no idea that Darth Maul or the way that we're referring to him now as Maul mm-hmm. <laughs> was still alive. So... You know, I immediately went up in my own head. I was like, "Wait a second, okay, so this takes place. Wait, this is, takes place before the Phantom. Man- wait, how does that how does that timeline work? But wait, how old is everybody? So <laughs> the fact that I was spending so much time thinking about that means that I feel like it was kind of a kind of a mistake, right? Kind of a disaster. If I feel like I'm a better, I, I'm pretty Star Wars savvy, and if I was getting confused about that, think about your just general run of the mill milk toast uh, mall audience, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Shopping mall. It's not Darth Maul audience. Yeah, no, I, I saw it with my brother, and he is a bigger Star Wars guy than I am. And even after the movie, when we were talking about, because we didn't know it was coming either, we we briefly did that same thing. It was like doing the math, like wait a second, was is this bef- how's this? What, what? I was like, and then we were like, okay, no, it couldn't have been before. So he got his legs put back on somehow, and this is whatever, whatever's happened. He didn't die when he got cut in half. People usually die when they get cut in half, so. <laughs> well, plus it's a weird bit of red. I mean, it'd be one thing if we saw Darth Maul get cut in half, you know, two movies ago or something, but you're talking 20 years ago. I mean, the last time we saw him was in 1999 in The, fan- in the Phantom Menace, a movie that most people dislike. The idea that you would bring him back here, a character that we all thought was dead, in a movie that we weren't crazy about in the first place, it, it points to a very strange sort of philosophical direction that this series is taking <laughs> at this point. Like, are we really going to be grasping at this many straws? I agree he was a cool villain to begin with, and I didn't want him to die. And I thought there was a lot more character there. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it necessarily means that we should be, like, digging back into the annals, reappropriating characters just because... You know, we thought they were cool 20 years ago. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it does look like, and a lot of the speculation in the last couple of days has been, it's maybe not necessarily for the future potential solo movies, but setting up the Obi-Wan movie. Because he eventually goes on, he's supposed to go on to kill him at some point, right? To avenge Qui-Gon Jinn's death? Yeah, basically. Okay. So, yeah. who knows? I mean, I guess that's fine. But uh, it did feel clunky and a little bit weird. But I mean, it was kind of, kind of delightful, I, I guess. <laughs> it was it did it was such a baffling choice. Yeah, it got and my like, attention. Yeah, because I certainly wasn't expecting. And it. the last cameo you'd expect, I was expecting more original trilogy cameos, and there really weren't any, which was sort of refreshing and, and felt good. But they never actually, yeah, they don't actually ever mention Jabba the Hutt. They re- they allude to him a lot, but they never actually use the name. Yeah, which I appreciated. Just just in terms of like 
building out the you know like where the character goes next or giving you know laying the track for him going and getting involved with the huts on Tatooine or whatever as much as I like Woody Harrelson I felt like this movie kind of does Woody Harrelson dirty like I, I really feel that he doesn't have a hell of a lot to do in this movie despite the fact that they he has a really great setup and he's got a really interesting relationship with Tandy Newton and the fact that they kill her off early gives him uh, gives him motive for a lot of angst and to me he he just really felt like he was just like standing around taking up space in this movie I never a, I never felt like I knew who the hell he was where he came from or why I should care about him but I also never felt like he and Alden Ehrenreich, Ehrenreich had any sort of relationship that I should care about either they they didn't create the bond that you would need to make the ending more powerful because he eventually has to kill him and he like you said he shoots first which means a lot for people who know anything about mm-hmm. the Greedo controversy but I felt nothing when he shoots him first at the at the end of the film or I I also felt nothing when he quote unquote betrays him either even though he basically told him he was going to betray him I felt I felt nothing about any of that so as a result the character is a complete failure for me. Yeah, it just seemed like the obvious thing for Han Solo to do in that moment. You know, I guess the main thing that happens to Woody is his his lady dies, and he is a scoundrel, and maybe... Yeah, I don't know what, what we're supposed to take away from Han and his relationship, and what Han is supposed to learn from him, except shoot first and don't trust anybody, right? I, I was more connected to the relationship between River Phoenix and the dude in the fedora in the first 15 minutes of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is what I feel is like so the prototype for this relationship, right? Yeah. Like this is supposed to be the guy who teaches Han Solo to be Han Solo. And I was more invested in the relationship between fedora guy and young Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 15 minutes of screen time than I was in two hours and 15 minutes of screen time in this solo film. You know what, Matt? <laughs> This means we don't have to talk about Star Wars for a good long while. (laughs) I'm sure we'll find a way to do it, but we don't have to. Oh, there'll be tons and tons of news, I'm sure, over the next year and a half. Because all these movies we're talking about, the Obi-Wan movie, the Boba Fett movie, um, whatever comes first in Ryan Johnson's new trilogy, we'll we'll get all sorts of casting news. And obviously we'll have to talk about all that stuff. Well, at least least we can be excited about James Mangold, right? Yeah, I, I I like James Mangold a lot. We're tech, yeah, he's he's a Columbia alumni, so I I feel a Columbia connection to him now. Good. His but the thing is, they're saying this you know this Boba Fett movie is going to be a you know the the western, mm-hmm. which is what yeah, I thought we'll this solo film <laughs> should have been. So I, I don't know. I I feel like they keep teasing these ideas like oh this is the heist what this is the heist Star Wars movie this is the western Star Wars movie, but they're never actually really following through on that. No, they're not. Right? They're just they're just making milk toast Star Wars movies. Uh so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like him a lot and I like the idea of hiring him to do something like this, but but I don't know. Do we really need do we need a Boba Fett movie? Do we need movies about people that we've heard that we're familiar with? Can't we just get Star Wars movies about new characters? Don't isn't that why we love Ray and um and Finn and Kylo Ren? Like we like these characters. They're brand new. We've never seen them before. Isn't that what makes it kind of fun? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the member berries argument, right? Like, it just yeah. when we play on nostalgia, it's it's not it's not going to work, and it's not as effective as creating new stories. You know, you know the appeal of uh, of Star Wars is, is is the sandbox that they created, and now they get to play in it, and you don't need to rehash different things. Uh, just just stay in that galaxy and make cool new stories and we'll we'll respond uh respond well do you lay any of this at kathleen kennedy's feet 
Like, I know we, we just speculate about this stuff. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors. But do you think this is this is Kathleen Kennedy's quote-unquote fault? Well, let me say this. I think the Lord Miller version, I can't imagine that would be any better than this version. Um, maybe it would be funnier and goofier but I and, and less visually appealing probably, but I, I don't know if that would make a better movie. I don't know. I mean, it'd, it'd be fun to see that experiment, but, but uh, we, we never will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say... Kathleen Kennedy bears some responsibility for hiring two guys who clearly had a way they worked uh, that was not going to jive with the, the the task at hand, right? Whatever, maybe Lord Miller gave assurances they wouldn't do this or they would do that. But, you know, you got to do your research with these guys and talk to people that's that have worked with them and understand that they have a certain style of, uh, of directing that may not mesh with, with what you're doing. In terms of, of saving the movie, I think it was a pretty smart choice and easy transition, and they didn't make something that's an abject failure or something that's a total and complete embarrassment, which is, which is good. I'm not sure I can fault her for wanting to um, make a solo movie uh, you know, it, it seemed to be the the most obvious spin-off choice if they were going to do a spin-off for one of the characters. That said, you know, we went over in the beginning, I think spacing these movies out to a much greater degree would be helpful on a number of fronts. Um, and, you know, moving this movie to December would have made a whole fuck ton of sense in my mind you know maybe the editing's better maybe you do a couple even more reshoots maybe ron howard has a little more time uh to to reshoot stuff or maybe rework the script in a in a couple different ways but then again this was the kasdan's script and maybe this should have gone back to the to the drawing board or getting a couple (laughs) more drafts going from the beginning because clearly there were some deficiencies in the in the uh, in, in the tactics they were taking to tell this origin story, maybe you tighten it up, and, it, and it's you know two thirds of the movie is about the heist of the Kessel Run or something, or maybe you know the the first half of the movie stays in Corellia or, or whatever. Just just make it a little more uh, focused on, on whatever you were trying to say about the character itself and how you're going to show the character's growth and and how we know Han uh, in the original trilogy. So uh, they've got a lot of thinking to do and a lot of uh, reflecting to do, uh, and I hope upon inspection, upon introspection, they they realize that maybe fatigue is a thing, and maybe uh, we should tell more original stories and sort of fan service-y stuff is not the not the right answer. I I agree with all of that. It's <laughs> a very eloquent way that you put that, and I think it just goes to show you that as we've said before. It's really goddamn hard to make a pretty good movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's really goddamn easy to pass judgment on it. Yeah. <laughs> on a podcast. So. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, just going through that, like, there are so many fucking factors at play here, right? Like, yeah. it's just, it's impossible. And, it, you know, especially when you just have the the power of this franchise and how everything is, is broken down and and made uh made into such big news you know maybe it's maybe it's not surprising that there have been so many personnel changes on these movies because the stakes are so high here 
that you just have to do those if you're not getting what you know uh, the audience is is looking for you know and and you know maybe all these changes have been for the better I'm you know I looking through them I, I I think all the changes probably were for the better like Colin Trevor out it definitely shouldn't be in charge of charge of a movie and like the Lord Miller version of this script uh, probably would have been uh, could have been pretty embarrassing to be frank and you know whatever Gareth finished on Rogue One and needed help with I'm, I'm sure they they improved upon that so um, she's got a hard job and she's not yep. she's not whining about it and she's making really tough decisions and uh, she's gonna have to keep making some really tough decisions going forward yeah I think I think all that's very very true I mean she's she's not resting on her laurels that's for sure no she's not sitting back and being like ah this thing you know this thing runs itself mm-hmm. um she's not an autopilot she's making moves and she's making decisions and she's moving the puzzle you know she's moving the chess pieces around the board as she sees fit so mm-hmm. she's she's trying her best she's trying to make this thing work she's trying to uh answer to a lot of different masters exactly in the fall of 2019 which is the next time we will see another star wars movie you know what other franchise we're going to see a new installment from? Uh, well, we got a Harry Potter coming up, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <fair> enough. <laughs> we're going to see a couple more Marvel movies. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Uh, potentially, we're going to see an Indiana Jones. Is that what you're referring to? That's 2020. I'm talking. I'm talking November of 2019. November of 2019. All right. So we, about a year and a half from now, we're going to have a mm-hmm. new entry. In a, what do you call it, a beloved franchise? Yeah, 25th entry into a beloved oh, franchise. Oh, we're going to see, this is going to be a James <laughs> Bond movie, Matt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. And we've officially locked in Danny Boyle, and uh, we'll be going into production in December of this year. What? When did that happen? Have you have you not been uh, keeping track? No. Been reading your trades? I didn't read my trades. When did this fuck? is this new? Yeah, over the last three days, I think. Danny Boyle has officially been hired. They like John Hodges' script, writer of Train Spotting, um, and we are officially go for a December third start date. Holy shit! I've I've been I've been camping. I've been, I was I was at a music festival. <laughs> That's right, you're it's, at it was not, it's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> wow! I didn't mean to play it so coy. I, I didn't realize you were you were out of the loop. Uh, yes, Danny Boyle has officially been hired. It's all happening. Daniel Craig has signed off. The broccolis are on board. We have a new script. We're not going to have to deal with a fucking Purvis and Wade this time around. So by the time we get another Star Wars movie, we will officially be about a month into our 25th uh, uh, James Bond film. Oh, my God. That's exciting. Are you excited for Danny Boyle? It is. And and speaking of speaking of one offs, I mean, if Neil Purvis, if Purvis and Wade aren't involved this time around and John Hodges and Danny Boyle came sort of like out of left field with this idea, then I think it may potentially have have a chance to be that true, that unicorn that we've been searching for, right? That we've been waiting for. Maybe that one-off James Bond movie that doesn't have to serve the entire franchise can just be its own sort of individualized autonomous thing. Man, wouldn't that be fun if that started a streak of of them hiring, doing the same thing with just, you know, maybe Christopher Nolan's shot will be next, right? And let's keep doing it. These prestigious directors like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm going to take my one-off take on, on James Bond. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Why don't we just hire? Why don't we make? Why don't we hire a new James Bond every time? Yeah. Why don't we do an Idris Elba James Bond and a Jude Law James Bond and a Matthew Good James Bond and you know new director, new star every time. Yeah. Why not? Let's get. We'll, get, we'll have two James Bonds a year. One in May. One in 
December. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Calm down. We'll have M- take M- this one at a, time. a James Bond story. Um, <laughs> all right, Matt. I think we've said enough for one episode. Mm-hmm. We'll be back soon. Uh, but until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Live long and prosper. <laughs>